You ever left a child behind at church? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, I see that hand. Thank you. Um, I would be willing to give out a cash prize for the family that's done that the most because I know I wouldn't be giving away any money. How in the world could you do something like that? Well, actually, there are a couple of legitimate answers to the question. Not that I'm encouraging you to do this, but you're probably not doing it purely out of neglect or because you just want to leave your child behind. There are, there are some legitimate reasons why you might do that. One of those major reasons might be uh, an assumption. An assumption that, well, I thought he was with Dad, or I thought he was with Owen, or I thought he was with Luke, or I thought he was with Derek and Nicole. We've got like four or five different vehicles here, and, and the assumption that, that uh, any given child could be in any given one of those vehicles, and sometimes it turns out they're not, and uh, some of you have been very gracious to help us out <laughs> uh, in some of those pinches. Uh, it's happened more than once. But there can be a legitimate uh, reason that's not pure neglect. <clears throat> the, the other assumption that can go along with this, as I wrestle with my mic here, the other assumption that can go along with this is, is the assumption that any given child who might be left behind is cooperating uh, with the fact that he or, or she, in, perhaps in your case, belongs to us. You're our child, so you come with us. Our child goes with us. That, that basic, understandable assumption that our child goes with us because he's our child is behind the big question in Luke 2, 41 through 52. It's a big question that's going to show up over and over again in Luke. It's a question that Jesus himself is actually going to draw out when he's back in the temple a couple years from the time of Luke 2, and he's going to be asking the question, how is it that people say that the Christ is the son of David? And he, he asks a very important question about whose son the Christ is. And that question in many ways gets introduced here about Jesus. Whose son is he? And in, in this passage, the answer to that question, whose son is he, is obvious to Jesus' parents. Well, he's, he's our son. They're not wrong about that. The answer is not incorrect. But there's a big difference between he's our son and he's merely our son. Joseph and Mary's understanding of whose son Jesus is, is going to have to be radically expanded. Because he is their son, but he's not merely their son. So in this passage, in, in Luke 2, 41 through 52, we're going to find Jesus at a young age, being a good son, doing the kinds of things that a good son does, not denying the fact that he is the son of, of Joseph, at least by adoption, the son of Mary, that they are his parents, and at the same time acknowledging that he is the son of God, and that both must be. That especially in this case, the fact that God is his father must be, must be for us. 
And, and so we're going to find Jesus doing what a good son does. In verses 41 through 47, we're going to find him preparing as the son of God. Preparing to carry out the mission that he has because God is his father. Let's see that in verses 41 through 47. In verses 51 to 52, we're going to find Jesus submitting as a good son. That's going to turn out to be part of his preparation for his mission as well. He'll be learning in verses 41 through 47, submitting in 51 to 52. And then in between, what I think is the key part of this passage is we're going to find Jesus himself declaring who he really is. Even in a young way, at a young age, he's going to be acknowledging that he is not merely the son of Joseph and Mary. God is his father. We're going to see that in verses 48 through 50. We're going to see Jesus' own parents wrestle with the adjustment that it takes to hear that. Before I go any further, I want to read the text. So this is Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. If you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, uh, you're going to find this passage starting on page 858. Luke 2, verses 41 through 52. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of the Lord for us. <clears throat> so here are Jesus' parents. They're faithful parents. You're probably familiar with the story. Uh, if you went to Sunday school when you were growing up, then you probably heard the story in Sunday school because here's a story about Jesus as a boy. So this fits for kids, right? So they, Jesus' parents do this every year. Every year they go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. These are people who are faithful followers of God. They bring their kids, at least when they're old enough. They've at least done this with Jesus here. We don't know if they've done this previously or if they wait till he's 12 years old. Um, in certain senses, a young man. They, they bring their kids along. They're bringing their kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And when it's time to go home, they, without knowing it, leave Jesus behind. Why? Well, the same reason you left a kid at church, or the same reason we did anyway, uh, because they've got some assumptions. Supposing him, verse 44, to be in 
the group. And why do they suppose that? Because he's their kid. Of course he's going to be with them. He's going to be in the group. Evidently, this is the arrangement that they have. They don't get everybody together and say, pack all your things. They have a big group of people together. And when they leave, they all leave together. And of course, Jesus would leave with them because he belongs to them. That we do things in our family. And we can sympathize with his own mother having this perspective. And even there, her perspective is going to need to be corrected. Uh, Not contradicted, he is her son, but it's going to need to be broadened in a way that in some ways is going to be very uncomfortable for her. And the same thing is true for us. I want to just pause here for a moment and bring us alongside Jesus' parents to recognize that sometimes, without even realizing it, we can harbor the attitude that first and foremost, Jesus belongs to me. I've invited Jesus into my life. So he's, he's uh, he's here to take care of me. He's here in some sense to be on my side, to be about what I'm about. He, in some sense, he belongs to me. He's here for me. Sometimes we suppose Jesus to be with us. Here I am doing my thing. Uh, it, maybe it's something that's not wrong at all, not wrong to go back to Nazareth, but I'm doing my thing. I've got my goals, and I suppose Jesus to be along for the trip with me. And when I realize that he's not, that he's not necessarily on board with the mission that I'm about right now, I panic and I think, where, where are you? You're supposed to be here with me. Think about what, what some of these things are. That what, What's our version sometimes of just going back to Nazareth and just assuming that Jesus is along for the trip with us? Well, I just wanted nice kids. I, 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 just, I just wanted my kids to, to, to be easy to raise. I wanted them always to, to be kids that people would look at and say, wow, weren't you great parents? And of course, Jesus is, isn't he supposed to be there to make all that work? I just wanted a peaceful retirement. I just wanted to be healthy. I just wanted people around me to do my thing, to prioritize my particular concern. I wanted them to join me in that. And, and isn't Jesus on my side? I was just trying to have a good day. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I just wanted things to go well for me today. And then things blew up for me today. And where's Jesus? I thought he was supposed to be here to give me a nice life. We wouldn't necessarily say those things. But those things function in our minds, don't they? And, and when those things that we expected, decent things to expect, when they don't happen, we look around and say, I supposed Jesus to be with me in this particular goal, and he's not. And, and I scramble, and I think, where, well, where is he? Where's he at? You find yourself searching for Jesus in great distress. It's not necessarily because he looks at the things you're concerned about and says, those things don't matter at all. Now, in some cases, that might be true. But in other cases, he he would say the things that you 
have a longing for and the goals that you have, those are not wrong. But they need to be expanded. I don't need to join you first and foremost in your goals. You need to join me where I am. Join me in the things that I'm pursuing. And that's what Jesus' parents are going to need to learn. So, they began searching for him among their relatives, verse 44, and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, verse 46, they found him. And after three days might mean three days after they left him in Jerusalem. It might not mean that they searched for him for three days in Jerusalem. But three days after this all starts, they, they finally find him in the temple. If your 12-year-old were left behind in Jerusalem, say, what would you expect to find him doing? If you've, if you've had a 12-year-old or you've been a 12-year-old, then maybe you can guess, right? Wandering aimlessly just around Jerusalem and you find him and you say, what, what were you doing? I don't know. I mean, if you have a more active 12-year-old, the one who got the Enthusiasm Award in kindergarten, then maybe you find him doing something more active, like ding-dong ditching the Roman garrison with his buddies. And you say, "What do you know what you're doing here? And he might say, oh, it's no big deal, Mom. Come on, this is, this is not a problem. In some way or other, compromising your mental health or your cardiac health. Jesus is different. Jesus is remarkably different. They find him sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Verse 46. It's mainly through seeing him do this that people are amazed at his understanding and his answers. Here's Jesus demonstrating his, his understanding. He's showing himself to be a wise young man. He's not wandering aimlessly in Jerusalem. That would have been me as a 12-year-old. He's not causing problems in Jerusalem. That would have been some of my friends as 12-year-olds. He's, he's being very purposeful. He's doing what he's doing on purpose. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And as he does, it's by doing that, that he's amazing people by his understanding and his answers. If you were a very wise, very insightful 12-year-old, sitting among teachers, and you had the opportunity to amaze them with your answers, what would you do? I can tell you what I would have done as a 12-year-old if I had the ability to amaze people with my answers. I would amaze them with my answers. I would say a lot of things. Somebody would say, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And I would say, I know. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Oh, and I know the second one too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Ask me another. Because I can amaze you. That's not the way Jesus is doing it. People are being amazed by the wisdom, by the insight of this young man. But the main way that they're seeing it happen is by the fact that he is sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Sometimes you demonstrate more understanding by asking the most important questions 
than by giving impressive answers to less important questions. And so Jesus here is learning. He's preparing by asking and learning. He's preparing to carry out his mission, the mission that he's learning he has. Now, Luke doesn't actually tell us anything about the content of Jesus' conversation with the teachers. The content that he gives us is the content, the very brief content, of the conversation between Jesus and his parents. We need to see the example of Jesus, to see the wisdom of this young, good son on display in the basic way that he interacts with teachers. And we need to hear the content of his conversation with parents. That's what he gives us, really in what I think is the core part of this passage, when we start to understand what's, what's Jesus about in what he's doing. We see that in verses 48 through 50. Who must he be? First, in in verse 48, the the question of who he must be, whose son he is, is drawn out in the very first time Jesus is spoken to in the gospel. This is interesting. The very first time Jesus is spoken to in the gospel of Luke, he's questioned. He's asked a question. Son, why have you treated us so? Now, in one sense, we can sympathize with Mary asking that question, right? If you've ever had a child go missing, 12-year-old or otherwise, you know how long it takes for your imagination to get churning. What has happened? I can come up with all kinds of things that have happened. It takes 47 seconds for your imagination to get churning. And so the natural result is great distress. But there's something more going on than Mary realizes. Notice the very understandable assumption that's built into Mary's question. Son, why have you treated us so? Son, you're ours. Son, you belong to us. So, given the fact that you belong to us, you are ours, you should be cooperating with the fact that you belong to us, how could you do this to us? She has an answer to the question, whose son is he? And her answer to the question is not incorrect. It's our son. But it is incomplete. It needs to be completed. He's their son. And he's not only their son. And Jesus answers that question in verse 49. This is also the first time in the gospel that Jesus speaks. The earliest recorded words of Jesus in any of the Gospels answer the question, whose son is he? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 49. Jesus knows what he's doing here. Most of the time when I was 12, I didn't know what I was doing. And if my parents said, how could you do this? My answer would be the classic, I don't know. Jesus knows what he's doing. We can imagine Mary responding to what Jesus says here. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In my father's house. Imagine Mary's response. 
Your father's house was where we were all going to when you stayed behind. What do you, what do you mean, your father's house? So, her reference to your father and I, in verse 48, is legitimate. But it's not ultimate. I must be in my father's house. Now, Jesus' response, when he says this, it, it could sound like self-defense. Really not self-defense, it's self-identification. He's saying, this is where I was supposed to be because this is who I am, because this is who I belong to. There's somebody else that I belong to even more, even more than I belong to you. I do belong to you, and I belong to somebody else more. I am somebody else's son. And what he says is remarkably consistent with what's been said about him already. What was said to Mary, he will be called the Son of God. And she's having to learn what this actually means. And so Jesus says, if, if you knew who I was, if you knew whose I was, you would have known where to find me. I am my father's. And so I'm at my father's. I'm at my father's house. The word house is actually not in the original. It's, it could be translated, uh, did you not know that I had to be in my father's possessive. So, in my father's what? Well, if, if, I, if I said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm over at Luke's. I'm at Luke's. Well, at Luke's, well I'm, I'm at Luke's house. So, Jesus says, I'm at my father's. Because that's where he belongs. <clears throat> he is being his father's son. And so, he's learning to do his father's work. He must be at his father's because this is the place where right now he can best prepare to do what his father does. Joining in his father's work, he's going to do that with Joseph in Nazareth. And right now he must do that with his father here in Jerusalem. So he's preparing by asking and learning. He's making sure that he understands the heart and mind of God especially as it's revealed in Scripture. What more appropriate place to do that than in Jerusalem, in the temple, among the teachers, among those who have, or at least should have, the best knowledge of the place where God reveals himself in the Scripture. Because during his earthly ministry, from the time he's introduced until the time he is crucified, his main priority is going to be helping people to understand the heart and mind of God, especially as it's revealed in the Scripture. That's going to be his main priority. Other people are going to want him to have another main priority. That's actually going to show up fairly soon in chapter 4. Jesus heals. He heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law. And a whole bunch of people show up. And they bring people to be healed. And Jesus heals them. And there are people who are oppressed, oppressed by demons. And Jesus releases them from that oppression. And then he goes out to a desolate place to pray. And what do people do? Well, as we'll find when we get to that passage. They seek him out. And they seek him out because they want him to be their Jesus. They have a goal for him. They have good things that they want him to do. And what does Jesus say is his primary priority. <clears throat> he said to them, verse 43, I must pray.
preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. I'm going to have to leave you because I have a priority, and that priority is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. For I was sent for this purpose. So here in the temple, he's preparing to do exactly that. So he tells his parents, why, why were you searching for me? It's not an accusation. Your, your distress is, uh, is legitimate, but it's not necessary. Uh, if you knew whose I was, you would know where I was. You could have found me here. And they don't understand. As we've come to expect, they were not expecting this. This is what happens in verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Remember what Simeon said about Jesus in verses 34 and 35? This is going to take an adjustment, a painful adjustment, Mary, even for you. You will primarily identify him with you. As your son, your sense of his purpose is going to come from the fact that you identify him as your son. But that's not his primary identity. His primary identity is going to require an adjustment on your part. He won't make sense to you, but it is good for you. You need him to be your son. And you need him to be more. He must be in his father's house because he must for us be the son of God. This is who he must be. We need him to be the son of God and the son of man. We're also going to need to trust him. So this is going to take an adjustment. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful for Mary. And God graciously through the perfect character of her, of her son, gives Mary and Joseph good reason to trust this boy. To listen to him. To find him trustworthy. And we see that in verses 51 and 52. As Jesus continues to prepare for his ministry by being the good young son of God, in the context of being the good young son of Joseph and Mary. They didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And then in verse 51, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He lived as their son. Jesus is going to speak with authority as the son of God. He's going to do that when he starts and as he completes his public ministry as an adult. He's going to speak with authority. And he's preparing to speak with that authority by listening and asking questions and by living under authority. He's not only their son, and yet he is their son, and he lives as their son. And he does that to prepare to speak with the kind of authority that he describes in chapter 20. He's back in the temple. They've been questioning him again. Uh, now he begins to question them. He said to them, how can, they say, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? He is David's son, but he's not only David's son. People are going to have to be prepared for him being something more. They would be happy for him simply to be David's son. To show up to be the king we've been looking for, the one who will fight our battles for us and deliver us from the problems that we can see. And Jesus, as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the perfect Son, is here to do more. Even more than we would naturally want. And so people are going to need to be prepared for him. He's preparing. They're going to need to be prepared. Not because there's something wrong with him that they're going to need to get used to, but because, of course, there is something wrong with them and with us. And so that's what's going to happen in the next passage. The preparer is going to come. John the Baptist and his message is going to be repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The the thing that you need to do to be prepared to receive Jesus as he is, is to recognize yourself as he is. To recognize that the main thing you need to be saved from is yourself. Your own sin. Now our expectations get thrown off very quickly. Mine get thrown off very quickly. I want Jesus along for the ride, and Jesus is not interested in being along for that ride. He wants to take me where he's going. And the good news is that even when when I'm off on the wrong track, Jesus is still Jesus is still findable. Jesus is still about his father's work. <clears throat> I can still come back to him. What's the main thing that he came to do? What's the main thing that he calls me to follow him in and to join him in? We actually get a hint from this passage. What's the timing of their trip to Jerusalem? It's the Passover. Passover. What does the Passover do? The the thing that the Passover does when it first happens, we read about it this morning, is it, it redeems the firstborn. We have this whole issue of the firstborn here. The Passover pictured the need of God's people to be redeemed. And in the first Passover, the, the primary person who was redeemed in each, in each family was the firstborn son. The firstborn son needs to be redeemed. Because none of the firstborns that have shown up so far are able to bring about redemption. They need to be redeemed. David is described as God's firstborn. God says, I'll make him my firstborn. And David can't do it. Israel is described as God's firstborn. Israel is my firstborn son, he says to Pharaoh. And Israel can't do it. Adam, in his own sense, is God's firstborn son. And Adam fails as God's firstborn son. None of them can accomplish redemption. So God must send a qualified firstborn to do it. And here he is, and he hasn't left. And as unfaithful as all the firstborns have been, as unfaithful as we are, as unfaithful as I am, Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. I must be in my father's house. I must be doing my father's work. And so I'm going to help people to understand the heart and mind of God, and then I'm going to fulfill it for them. I am going to be 
the firstborn on their behalf. And I'm going to give my life for them. It's so helpful for forgetful people like me and perhaps like you to have a regular reminder of how Jesus has done this for us. That he is the son of man that he must be. The good young son of God. The good perfectly grown son of man who would give himself for us. And so that's what we're going to celebrate in just a minute. I'm going to encourage you to just spend some time acknowledging that Jesus is who you need him to be. That Jesus is perfectly qualified. Bringing all of your failures to be qualified. The times that you've been off on your own leaving Jesus behind. And to remember that he is unchanging and unchangingly good for you. And then as, you, as you've had opportunity to reflect on that, to set yourself before the Lord, I want to encourage you to come up and, and receive one of the communion kits that's in front. If you'd take that back to your seat, feel free to, to peel the, the top off and be prepared. And then we'll receive the bread together and we'll receive the drink together as well. Father, you knew who must fulfill your purposes for us. You knew that none of us could do it. And so you have sent your own son. More than we would have imagined, something for all of us to adjust to. But I pray, Father, that this week we would continue to return to Jesus as he is, where he is. Walk with him. Pray this in Jesus' name.